Hey, this is DeRay, and welcome to Pod Save the People. In this episode, we talk to Andy Slavitt, one of the first guests we had on the podcast. He was literally on episode two of Pod Save the People way back when. He's a former acting administrator of the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, a position he was nominated for by Obama in July of 2015, and he retained until 2017. Now more than ever, we need to hear his voice because there's so much happening around public health with the coronavirus. And as usual, it's the news with me, Brittany Clinton, Sam, as we talk about everything that's happening so we can keep you informed and so we can be informed. My advice for this week is to take things seriously. You know, there's been a lot of conversation about COVID-19, about the coronavirus, and people have been joking about it. People have still been going to parties. People have still been hanging out as if there's not a public health crisis happening. Remember, things shouldn't have to touch your doorstep for you to believe that they're real. And I fear that there's so many people who aren't going to take this serious until it is very close to their own doorstep. We know better. We should do better. Let's go. Hey, y'all. It's the All Rona Everything edition of the Pod Save the People News. This is Brittany Packnett Cunningham at Miss Peck Yeti on all social media. And this is Sam Sinyangwe at Sam Sway on Twitter. And this is Clint Smith at Clint Smith the Third. I, I, I. And this is DeRay at D-R-E-Y on Twitter. So none of us are out here. We all <laughs> inside, indoors <laughs> with our loved ones or as it were with DeRay with his weighted blanket. And we are, shout out to the weighted blanket. We are following that the was CDC. shady. <laughs> Duray's like, I don't need anybody. I got this blanket. We are following the World Health Organization and the CDC's recommendations on social distancing, washing our hands, using hand sanitizer, using Clorox and bleach wipes to clean everything. To be clear, I was doing this before, but we definitely doing it now. And I would like to know from you all. I know that. I know that nobody on this podcast stocked up um, more than they needed to, right? That we stocked up for how much we needed for the amount of people in our homes. We are not people who are panic buying, as they say, and people who are leaving folks without. But what is in you all's quarantine pantry? Like, I want to know what's in your pandemic pantry. What are you going to be eating on for the next week, two weeks, month? We don't even know. So I'm really bad at stocking up. Like I get the things that I really want to eat in the moment and then forget about like what I'm going to need like a week or two weeks in the future. So don't go to Sam's house, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. It's not, I mean, it'll be nice for like tonight and tomorrow, but after that, it's going to be a crisis. So the newest thing has been frozen grapes. Turns out like frozen grapes are delicious. And nutritious as it were. Yeah. So like that's my new dessert. It's healthy. It's easy. Just freeze the grapes after you wash them, put them in a freezer in addition to that, what else? You know, I got steak, some skirt steak. I got some pork chops in there. Sam is out here about to have gourmet pandemic meals. Yeah, as I'm saying, <laughs> I'm going to have a good time for the next like two or three days. But after that, it's going to be... Low key though, when you have time to cook, you can... I Last night I did a rice pilaf with sautéed spinach, roasted cauliflower, and um, shrimp, fresh shrimp. And it was delicious. And I like plated it like I was on Top Chef or something because I had all the time in the world to like create a nice meal. (laughs) How about you, Delroy? Uh, So I can't cook. So I bought a lot of things. I bought some of that rice that you just microwave and heat up. Got that. That got that good rice. Got some oatmeal. I normally stick to things that are microwavable, but I did venture out and buy some cutlets of chicken something that you have to put in the oven on heat or something. So I'm hopefully it doesn't get so dry that I have to use those. I don't have a toaster, but I did buy some Pop-Tarts. I got some cereal, got some milk, 
I got some cans, you know? I had to take it back to Chef Boy RD. I haven't had Chef in a while. Throwback Thursday with the Chef Boy RD. Yeah, I had to get some Chef Boy RD. And Gogurt. You know, Gogurt is an on the go snack. I got some boxes of Gogurt. <laughs> on the go to your bedroom, on the go to the living room. <laughs> On the go, down the hall. I might have been to the mailbox. <laughs> I'm like, whoo, I need a little snack. I, I got some Chobani too, but, you know, Gogurt tastes a little better. So I'm ready. But the weighted blanket really is my, and we can talk about that in another episode, but weighted blankets and diffusers are my new random stuck in the house. It might as well smell nice. Listen, it might as well. you might as well smell nice and you might as well fall asleep in a nice warm hug. I am with you on both of those things. Our pandemic pantry is like, it's a mix it's a lot of grains. So we got brown rice and white rice and basmati rice, <laughs> lots of rice. Um, we have a good selection of meats and seafood and then, you know, have split stuff up between the refrigerator and the freezer or the ice box. I had godparents who called everything the ice box. So they would send me out to the garage to the ice box. And I'm like, <laughs> the refrigerator or the freezer? I don't know. But, um, you know, we'll have proteins that will last us a little while. My, I'm going to be honest, everyday stock up food, whether or not there is something going on in the world, is Ritz Bits peanut butter crackers. As far as I'm concerned, I'm probably the single person who is keeping Ritz Bits peanut butter crackers produced and alive. I should buy some stock in them. Ritz can stop making those cheese ones. Nobody eats those. They're foul. They're whack. But the peanut butter ones... I can eat a whole box in one sitting. I'm trying not to do that because I own, like, I didn't buy 30 boxes, right? Because that's brood. So I have to pace myself a little bit more than I normally would. So yeah, Pandemic Pantry is definitely stocked of the good stuff. But as a reminder, panic buying, i.e. buying more than what you need and what your neighbors might need is not a good idea. But do keep in mind that especially if you have low-income folks that live near you, elderly folks who live near you, disabled people who live near you who might have had trouble getting to the grocery store, that if you are able to buy certain things that um, sharing is absolutely caring, especially during a time like this. And also a reminder that it is always a good day if you are able to go on a giving spree. As we talked about last week, donating money to food banks is something that they can stretch even further than you donating food products directly. And that's something that you can do online. Uh, So donate money to food banks, to homeless shelters, to LGBTQ shelters, to domestic violence networks, because unfortunately for some people, home is not actually a safe place to be locked up in. And so just remember that we are all in this together because God knows this administration does not have our backs. I will say when I when I asked Teray what should I buy or I told her the things that I were buying, she was like, Teray, don't forget you need saltines in case you get sick. And then she said applesauce. She was like, if you get sick and are stuck at the house, you still need to be able to eat, so make sure you get a little applesauce. So I got those three, and then I was done. We're glad for all of the mamas and aunties and big sisters and big cousins that tell us the things we need to hear, especially what to stock up on as the entire world goes through something completely unprecedented, and we all learn from and lean on each other. And now, the news. So as is often the case, incarcerated people are specifically and especially vulnerable in this sort of scenario and and specifically when there's a public health crisis like coronavirus because they have limited access to basic hygiene measures and their rates of existing healthcare issues are much higher than the general population. And it's small things, right? Like when people are held or transported around in handcuffs, they can't cough into the crook of their elbow. 
hand sanitizer with alcohol, which is what health authorities recommend to people to use um, and to use thoroughly, is considered contraband in most U.S. prisons because of the alcohol content, even though the irony is that many of the folks incarcerated in New York are currently making the hand sanitizer for the rest of the state for 65 cents an hour. Uh, and more generally, prisons are incredibly closely confined, and there's no real way to effectively self-quarantine individuals who who might get sick. So the Prison Policy Initiative has laid out five things that they believe can be done right now to mitigate the impact of coronavirus and to prevent people both inside and outside of prison from spreading the virus when they don't need to. So first thing is uh, releasing medically fragile and older folks who are in prison. Uh, jails and prisons house large numbers of people with chronic illnesses and complex medical needs who are more vulnerable to becoming seriously ill and require more medical care with something like COVID-19. And with the growing number of older folks in prison, they are at higher risk for serious complications from a viral infection like coronavirus. And releasing these vulnerable folks from prison and jail will reduce the need to provide complex medical care or transfers to hospitals when staff will already be stretched in. And in Iran, we already see this happening uh, where the virus has been spreading for several weeks longer than in the U.S. We don't even have a good sense of what the numbers are because there's a government cover-up going on. But the government did give temporary release to almost a quarter of the total prison population in the entire country because the situation is so bad there. And so we don't want to end up in a position where we are in the sort of public health crisis that they are. But there is something to be said for releasing people who don't represent an immediate threat and who are already older and medically compromised. Additional things that can be done are to stop charging medical copays to people in prison. They can lower jail admissions to reduce the jail churn, right? Like if you have a thousand people coming into a jail every couple of days and a thousand people leaving that jail, the potential for the spread of the disease both in and outside of that incarcerated space is incredibly high. Uh, you can reduce unnecessary parole and probation meetings. People shouldn't have to get on public transportation and travel hours and hours and take off work to go meet with a parole or probation officer that they can either not do or do over the phone. And then just generally, uh, they recommend eliminating parole and probation for technical violations, right? So for example, in 2016, around 60,000 people ended up back in state prison, not because they were convicted of a new criminal offense, but because of a technical violation of probation or parole rules like breaking curfew or failing a drug test. And given the circumstances, they think that it's most effective if they stop locking up people for those sorts of behaviors. Uh, I would argue that we should not lock people up for those sorts of things at all, uh, but certainly in the midst of a public health crisis. So these are just reminders to think about some of the things that can be done in order to limit the impact, slow the spread of the virus, both inside and outside of prison. And that, you know, all it takes, I teach in, in DC jail, as you all know, and we've now stopped allowing our classes to take place and visitors aren't allowed to come in, uh, which is hard. You know, I'm of two minds of it. It's hard because I know that these programs and these classes are often the only things that these folks inside, one of the only things that these folks inside have to look forward to, um, to sort of break up the monotony of being incarcerated. But it also is the right decision from a public health perspective, because all it takes is one person getting sick in those close confines, and the thing could spread like wildfire, which is something I'm deeply concerned about.
So to that point, Clint, we see uh, in some places across the country, at the local level at least, we're seeing sheriffs and in some cases DAs beginning to take steps to protect people from the threat of coronavirus spreading, particularly in incarcerated settings and in the context of law enforcement interactions. So one of those examples is in Bexar County, which is in San Antonio where the sheriff just announced this past week that they were going to be implementing a number of steps in order to limit the possibility of coronavirus spreading through their own actions. Uh, So first of all, they will only be responding to what they call emergency calls, and they will not be sending deputies to non-emergency 911 calls, uh, at least temporarily. They are also screening all people who are being booked into jail. And perhaps most importantly, they are temporarily suspending arrests for minor offenses. And as we've said in previous episodes, the vast majority of arrests that happen in this country are for minor offenses or for nonviolent offenses. This is an acknowledgement that those arrests are not only often unnecessary, but actually in the context of a pandemic can actually lead to the spread of coronavirus and interactions that have that risk of a spread uh, happening between police and communities. And so these are some initial steps that are being taken, at least in Bexar County. Uh, We're seeing, you know, Chesa Budin in San Francisco has also announced a couple of measures meant to limit the spread of coronavirus through his position as district attorney there. Uh, So again, I I think this moment uh, has pushed and put a lot of pressure on sheriffs and other local and state policymakers who oversee this massive uh, system of mass incarceration to at least begin thinking differently about the conditions that they are actively contributing to that can actually make this situation even worse. So a Twitter user named Francis Sang compiled all of the stopgaps that have been put into place by companies, governments, municipalities, etc. during this state of emergency. To both your point, Clint, and your point, Sam, there are certain things happening that people continuously say are impossible, except they seem to be completely possible. We see that several places have suspended evictions. We see that several companies have reversed their paid leave policies and provided people paid leave for two weeks or more. We see that there are companies that are suspending utility and internet shutoffs. We know that actually this administration stopped interest payments for student loans. We also know that social media sites are actually pulling false information, misinformation, and disinformation from their sites. These are things that we talk about all the time on this podcast. We talk about all the time in the work that we do separately and individually. People are talking about all the time online. And what do we hear? It's impossible. We can't pay for it. That won't work. That can't be done. It's never been done before. We can't do it now. Except we can. Because we're doing it right now. When the world is in a state of emergency, we are figuring out how people can live sustainable lives, how they can get the food that they need, access to the income that they need, the shelter that they need, the amenities that they need, and the care that they need. We are figuring out how to do that. Guess what? Given the level of inequality in this world, we are in a state of emergency whether or not there is a pandemic. And companies and governments need to step up in the exact same way that they're doing right now every single day until we actually see equity in this space. Now, remember that as of uh, March 10th, the Federal Bureau of Prisons has said that there have been no confirmed coronavirus cases in the 122 facilities that they manage. But also know that we have not tested almost anybody, that the only people that seemingly are getting tested quickly are celebrities and people connected politically. 
What's interesting that most people don't realize is that the federal government imprisons about 175,000 people. There are 2.2 million people incarcerated. So most of the people incarcerated are incarcerated at the local and state level. But what I didn't know, and I'd be interested, is that in a lot of contracts at the federal level, they require a process called augmentation. And Clint, I don't know if you've ever heard of augmentation, but it requires a support staff in the prisons and jails to serve as correction officers when there are shortages. So all across the country, there are teachers who have to fill shifts, there are nurses, there are secretaries. All of the prison staff have to, as a part of their contract to work uh, in federal prisons, they have to agree to fill in. And when Trump put in the hiring freeze, correction officers were impacted. So it's roughly about 12 to 13 percent of the positions for correction officers across the country are vacant. So people are worried that coronavirus will just exacerbate the strain and demand on the system already. And what's interesting about the vacancies in all prisons and jails is that they're funny about it. Cause like the government will be like, you know, we have a vacancy. And what most people think is that they need more funding. They're like, we need to fund corrections better. But the reality is, is that they're well-funded. People just don't want to work there. People don't want to work in the jail. People don't want to work in the prison. And it's only the jails and prisons that when people don't want to work there, you blame the community. If this was another place and nobody wanted to work there, we'd be like, well, what's wrong with the thing? What's wrong with the institution? And what we know about the institution of prison is that it harms everybody involved, that like people come out scarred in so many ways. So back to what was already said when Clint introduced this, is that we should actually just let people out of prison, that maybe this can be the beginning of uh, decarceration at scale. And, you know, if there's an outbreak in a prison, which there have to be people in one of the prisons for sure, at the federal level, and in cities and states that have coronavirus, like mathematically, statistics, like this is happening. We are not prepared for an outbreak. So as we continue to prepare ourselves for this continued pandemic, I think it's really important that not only do we stamp out misinformation, but we supply people with correct information. Now, I know I was joking earlier and laughter is good medicine, but it's not medicine that is going to get rid of this virus or anything else. We've been joking about the idea that in black households, because we already are extra clean about things and we already drink a lot of ginger ale and always have Robitussin on hand, that we can't get coronavirus. We absolutely can. And I want to be very clear about that because there have been things that have gone beyond jokes and have become actual strains of information that people have been hearing that, well, because some African countries were the last to get it, the black people actually can't get the coronavirus. This is patently false and untrue. Not only is it false, we know that black people actually are at higher risk of death from COVID-19 than other populations. Dr. Georgia C. Benjamin talked to the undefeated. He himself is an African-American doctor, and he talked about the fact that because health outcomes are disproportionately poor in Black communities, that exposure to COVID-19 will mean that there will be a disproportionate death rate among African-American people. In some ways, this sounds like a water is wet thing, but we need to make sure that people truly understand this. The people who are suffering most from COVID-19 are people who are 60 or older and or people 
who already have chronic diseases. Because Black people disproportionately fit that last category, and because Black people are disproportionately uninsured, underinsured, and have a lack of access to adequate health care, we know that Black communities can be the hardest hit by this. Obviously, we are all going through this and we are all trying to protect ourselves, but there have been some particularly virulent urban legends and conspiracy theories that have been circulating in the Black community specifically, which is why I wanted to take the time to shine a light on these things. There are conspiracy theories, including the idea that Bill Gates either knew about or invented COVID-19. There's a video that is going around and there are actual famous Black people with platforms of millions of followers that are posting this. Not only is that incredibly dangerous, it is completely false. We also, again, know that people have been saying that Black people are immune from the disease. This, again, is not true. And it's so, so important that all of us take the responsibility that we have and the power that we have to influence folks, whether it's one person, 20 people, or 200 million people, to give out correct information so that we can all stay as healthy and safe as possible. So I think it is really important to recognize, as you said, Brittany, the way that this virus can potentially disproportionately impact the Black community, as is the case for so many of these viruses, because we disproportionately don't have health care, because we disproportionately suffer from a range of medical ailments. And to your point about the sharing, it's a fine line, right? Because you're absolutely right that it is incredibly irresponsible. And this is not to excuse or absolve. But, uh, you know, again, we talk all the time about how history informs the way that people navigate the present. And I think it is important to recognize that there is a long history of disease and viruses and insidious and nefarious medical interventions that Black people have been on the receiving end of in the most horrific of ways that create what is often a real and legitimate reason to be suspicious of things that government entities or others are saying about what a disease doesn't do. In the best example is Tuskegee, right, where people were told that they were given something that was going to make them better when they were actually purposefully not given the medicine that would have made syphilis go away. And so just context for why in our community sometimes these things have a different level of resonance. Um, and I also want to just say that, like, it is not only that this virus has the potential to disproportionately impact us health-wise, but also, I mean, I'm just thinking about, and this is a kind of tension I alluded to before, where it is absolutely the right decision, I think, from a public health perspective to cancel the sports leagues, cancel all the games, cancel all the tournaments, cancel these events. But I'm thinking about, and folks have been talking about this, the folks who work at these arenas, the folks who work at your barbershop, at your beauty salon, the folks who work at McDonald's, I mean, just like we are also disproportionately impacted on an economic front by a lot of what is going to be taking place over the next several weeks. Because the thing about social distancing is that you are, you know, we've been all hearing about flattening the curve. And so we're trying to flatten the curve to make it so that our healthcare system is not completely overwhelmed. And you have doctors who are choosing who is going to die and who's going to live, who's going to get the ventilator, who's not, because we don't have enough. But what that also means is that when you flatten the curve, you extend it. So we're going to be dealing with this for a significant amount of time. I don't think any of us have a sense of like how long we will be experiencing life with this virus around us. And so there's going to be a significant and very real economic set of implications. The House, as of this recording, passed a bill that is supposed to provide some relief, though I am concerned because apparently it leaves out a significant chunk of folks who have access to paid sick leave. But yeah, from a health perspective, from an economic perspective, 
we are, as we have always been, among the most vulnerable and the most at risk. So it is important to be wary and to make sure we understand what's out of us. There's a really solid article that's in City Lab written by Brenton Mock, and he tracks where this idea that Black people are immune from diseases comes from. And he tracks it back to the 18th century. In the 1740s, there was a yellow fever outbreak, and there was one physician who looked at cities like Charleston, South Carolina, which is a port city, and was inspecting uh, slave ships and people who were enslaved and found that almost exclusively white people were dying from yellow fever. And that laid the medical foundation for this idea that black people were just immune to a set of things that white people would die from. And the danger of that is that in 1793, there's another physician who came along, took the research from the first guy, and in 1793, they had a yellow fever outbreak in Philadelphia. About 20,000 people left Philadelphia, about half of the population of Philadelphia left. But a lot of Black people stayed because the doctor was like, you guys are immune. I read this research. You guys are immune. I'm going to train you to be nurses and medical professionals so you can help out for the people that are dying. This guy was an abolitionist. He was close to Black clergy, some of the most influential people in Philadelphia. Now, here's the thing. A lot of people stayed because Dr. Rush, who Benjamin Rush, told him to. And a lot of those people died. They were victims of yellow fever. Black people were not immune, but they had been told that, like, they'd be fine. And a huge segment of the Black population was screwed in the process. The other thing that I didn't know about what's happening right now is that as of March 10th, Norwegian cruises ordered sales workers, this was reported in the Miami New Times, to say lines like this to customers. The coronavirus can only survive in cold temperatures, so the Caribbean is a fantastic choice for your next cruise. And other lines like, scientists and medical professionals have confirmed that the warm weather of the spring will be the end of the coronavirus. And you're like, this is, y'all are lying to people. And these lies really can hurt people. And let's remember that xenophobia and racism are never tolerated. So we spend a lot of time talking about Black people in the pod because that's the lens that we most naturally come from. But we think about why it's important that people are not racist towards people from China or any Asian country is that we remember that in the early 1900s, Chinatown in Honolulu was actually burned down because people thought that the Chinese were spreading diseases. So like, we're not just like worried about the way people talk about things. We are worried about the serious implications that happen uh, when people believe these things. So take it seriously. Clint, I think you're right that this will get worse before it gets better. And we are just at the beginning. So I look back and I think about the wife of Trudeau has coronavirus. The woman who runs the RNC now is self-quarantine cruise. And Trump, do you remember when Trump was like, I'm not getting to, I haven't been tested. And then all of a sudden today, it's like he has been tested and is waiting for results. This man, like, you know, you can't believe nothing they're saying. But my news specifically is that Mexico is actually considering tightening the border to stop people from the U.S. going into Mexico because of their concern with how the government is handling the crisis. So like all that talk about a border wall, it's like we are actually the ones inflicting damage on other people's country because as of now, there have been 26 confirmed cases of coronavirus in Mexico with no deaths. But in the United States, there have been 41 deaths, even though we know we have been undercounting. And it just is a real interesting sort of turn that has happened where like other countries are nervous about us 
where the way Trump talks about it in the Republican Party, you think that we were being threatened by other countries. And remember that press conference where Trump said that you couldn't fly into the United States from Europe. It's like he botched all the details. So you all saw that picture of Charles de Gaulle. That was a nightmare. But like he didn't say this didn't apply to American citizens. Like he just botched it. And it is really interesting to see the way that the international community has responded to America's complete lack of leadership in this moment. I saw someone say that closing borders could prevent a lot of illnesses and diseases, but the time to do that would have been 1492. scuba And I thought that that was as funny as it was wise. <laughs> um, but truly, the failure of leadership in America is as dangerous as it is appalling. And these are the consequences of elections, Public policy, social policy, health policy, education policy, criminal justice policy. But it's also literally life or death for us and our neighbors. And the idea that we don't think very critically and very seriously about how we move forward in this next election based on what we are experiencing right now is scary to me. Anything less than counting what we have experienced as a country during this crisis in your calculations when you approach the ballot box is irresponsible for yourself and for your neighbors. What has happened here is frankly criminal. The amount of misinformation that has come directly from the top, the amount of disinformation that has been coming from White House sources, the amount of information that the White House has blocked because they want to make sure that it doesn't affect Trump's reelection chances. The idea that the White House would tell their departments not to tell seniors not to travel, which actually happened is disgusting. It is scary. Absolutely all of us are in danger right now. And we need to recognize that not only are we a danger to one another in this country, as Mexico is saying, we are potentially a danger to others as long as someone who is extremely incompetent and cruel is in office. You know, this is rapidly becoming a a huge issue as we're seeing countries across the world begin to identify not only Europe, which has become the center of this crisis, but now the United States as sort of a growing center of coronavirus and implement these types of bans. I mean, Guatemala just a couple of days ago implemented a travel ban on all U.S. travelers coming to Guatemala. As you said, Mexico is considering something similar. It's just embarrassing, right? Because we know that with all of the wealth, with all of the scientific advancements and research capacity and experts who are in the United States, we are among the worst right now in being able to develop a response to coronavirus, in being able to implement preventative steps to prevent this from spiraling out of control, which it clearly is doing. And then just to see Trump get up and do a speech that was timed to essentially inflate the stock market right before the closing bell by lying to the entire country that Google was going to create a website where everybody could go to see how their tests went. That is actually not true. Like Google had to come out then right after that and say, we're actually building a site for the Bay Area that is a pilot site. We don't have plans to expand this nationwide. That was an entire lie. Now, so many people across the country who had watched that speech or seen it on the news believe that there's going to be this platform created to help them that just frankly was never the plan. It's a disaster. I'm hopeful that all of those complicit in getting us to this point will be held accountable at the ballot box or sooner. I mean, there were just so many different people involved in this. I'm just learning about, for example, how Senator Susan Collins 
blocked $870 billion in 2009 under the Obama administration. She blocked $870 billion going to pandemic response funding. And now, you know, down the road, we definitely could have used that money to actually build up our infrastructure and capacity to prevent this. Seeing the Trump administration dismantle the pandemic response system that the Obama administration was able to build, even uh, without the money that they had fully requested for it, just dismantling that, offering no explanation for that, and then just pivoting and deflecting when asked about it. It's just, I mean, when you're looking at the projections uh, of how many people could be affected by this virus, it's something that if you were in any other job, you would have had to resign or step down or be fired like on the day. And yet these people are still in office and are still hoping to stay in office at least till November. And I think that that is, that is wild and we need to hold our government to a higher standard of conduct because our lives depend on it. So I'm uh, looking at this chart right now, and I just want to end on this note. This is so much bigger than you as an individual, right? Like you might be a teenager in your 20s, in your 30s, in your 40s. You feel completely fine. You're like, I really want to go out to the bar. I really want to go out to the restaurant. I really want to go do this or that. I'm looking at this chart that shows that uh, it's a comparison of age distributions of COVID-19 cases in Italy, where they're only testing people who show symptoms, and in South Korea, which has much broader testing. And what it shows is that there are a whole lot of 20 to 29-year-olds and 30 to 39-year-olds who feel just fine and who are largely asymptomatic, but who are carriers of the virus, and as a result, are likely to impact the people around them. So there's a lot we don't know, but like, please... Please, please. I know it is inconvenient. I know it is difficult. I know it might make you feel cabin fever, but like, do not go to crowded places to the extent that you can stay home, stay away from other people. Obviously, if you need to go to the grocery store, you need to go do this, you need to go do that for your kids, get them from school. But like, even if you feel fine, what we are learning is that you could still have coronavirus. Social distancing is difficult and we don't know how long this is going to last for. But we are, as has been said, we are at the very, very beginning of this, and we have to all do our part. It's not about us. It's not about how we feel. It's not about the inconvenience for our lives. It is about something much bigger than us. It's about our elderly neighbors, our immunocompromised community. It's bigger than us, and it's bigger than just you or how you feel. As we close, Clint shared... um piece of news with us from Dr. Doreen Marshall about protecting your mental health during this outbreak. Obviously, we know that social distancing can be really nerve-wracking for a lot of people. For those of us who deal with depression and anxiety, for people who might have had addiction issues or substance abuse challenges, who no longer have the meeting space or support that they typically do under normal circumstances, she suggests five things to keep yourself as well as possible. First, to separate what is in your control from what is not. Second is to do what helps you feel a sense of safety. Third, to get out in nature, even if you are, and especially if you are avoiding crowds. It is totally possible to go for a walk around the block and still keep at least that six-foot distance from other people and not going to crowded spaces. Number four, to challenge yourself to stay in the present. Don't get to disaster thinking and go 10 steps down the road and thinking about what could happen, stay in the moment and stay in the present. And lastly, stay connected and reach out if you need more support. Reach out to medical professionals, reach out to your friends and family. Heck, even build and engage in the community that you have online in social media spaces. This is a time when we're all going to have to be creative about holding one another up. And that's the news. 
Don't go anywhere. More Politic the People is coming. And here we go with my conversation with Andy Slavitt, one of the original guests of Pod of the People, former acting administrator of the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, and now on to talk about COVID-19. Andy, Andy, it's good to have you back. For longtime listeners, you'll remember Andy Slavitt as the second guest we ever had on Pod Save the People. It is so good to be back. I wish with better news, but good to be back. I know. So this whole episode is coroned. Let's just jump right into it. You know, I talked to my father yesterday and I was like, Daddy, are you, how are you doing? And he's like, oh yeah, this like, I think people are being dramatic. And I was like, nah, I think, I think this is real. And I'm like, are you stocked up? And he's like, oh, I have a lot of seafood. And I'm like, anything else? And he's like, no, I think we'll be okay. And I'm like, Daddy, go to the store, get what you need and da da da. Talk about how people should be approaching what is happening. And can you just explain what actually is happening? Like what is COVID-19 or coronavirus as people have been calling it? So a couple important things to start with. Um, This is a virus that we have absolutely no human immunity for. So they call it a novel virus. What they mean is that I don't care if you're a triathlete or who you are, this is the first time it's ever being seen on the face of the earth. So uh, you can't be immune to it. So that's the first thing to know about it. The second thing to know about it is it's highly contagious, much more contagious than the flu. And you can catch it from particulates, meaning, you know, someone could be talking and a little particulate could come out of their mouth or nose, it's invisible to you. Or they could have sneezed into their hand half an hour ago, touched a doorknob that you touch six hours later, and you can catch it that way. The third thing to know is that it's much more lethal than the flu And it's particularly lethal among two groups of people, older people. So if you're over 80, there's a 18% chance or so that you're going to die if you catch it. If you're over 70, it's a little less than that. If you're over 60, it's a little less than that. Um, And and if you're a kid, you're safe. And then the, the, the other thing to know is that oftentimes people get it. They're asymptomatic for quite a while, meaning you could have it, not know you have it, And so you'll be feeling fine, you could be out in the world, but you don't know whether or not you're going to run into someone who is going to run into someone's grandmother, and you inadvertently, without ever knowing it, put someone in significant danger. So I'll go from there to what I think is happening next, but that's kind of the the basics of coronavirus, COVID-19. Are there literally not enough tests for people? Is it, did we just not buy them? Does the government not know how to make them? Like celebrities can get tested, but nobody else can. In some places, it looks like there are no tests. Like what's happening with the testing? So the original sin here is being unprepared. And the original sin here is related to a couple of decisions that the president made. One was to disband his preparedness force that was supposed to keep us ready for these things. And then once the virus hit, people may recall he minimized it, said it was small, said it was only going to hit a few people, said it was going to skip us, said not to worry about it. And his scientists were hamstrung. It's hard to disagree with the president, particularly if you're a government worker, because uh, you see what happened to people in the State Department and people in the Justice Department when they did that. They not only got fired, they got their names dragged through the Twitter mud. So we were we were unprepared. That goes to the very question of why don't we have adequate testing now in the country? The test is a nasal or a throat swab 
And we, you know, we don't even necessarily have a sufficient number of those long swabs. It has to go into your nose about four inches. So it can't just be, it's not like a, a Q-tip. It's like an extremely long one. And then uh, it has to get processed in a lab. And that lab needs to be able to separate the RNA in the system. It's, and don't worry about all of the details. But in order to tell if the test is positive or negative, you need a bunch of things, reagents, equipment, sufficient laboratory space. And so other countries like South Korea, who actually had their first virus the same day we had ours, prepared and were producing tons and tons of tests and at drive-through sites. We are producing now about 10,000 tests a day. That'll go up next week to something higher, but that's not very many. You know, there's two purposes for a test. One is so you can get intelligence on a population. Very, very important so that you know who's got it. You can make adjustments in the community. You can tell when it's starting to spread, not just from people who traveled here, but be the community. The average person who gets COVID-19 infects something like 2.3 people. So the more you know, the more you can trace. That, unfortunately, if we had had tests a few weeks ago, we would have been able to use that in a way that allowed us to prevent COVID-19 from really taking off. Unfortunately, we didn't. And so we're quickly shifting to a circumstance where it'll be so widespread that the test will be of uh, more limited significance. It'll help us understand when it's moving into a community. That'll be important. But for you, if you get sick, don't expect to get a COVID-19 test. I think the protocol is going to shift to if you have a fever, the doctors will say, just assume you have the virus. And if you can't breathe, come to the hospital. But there'll be very little point in testing people at that point because there's nothing else that would be done differently. So does that mean that if I think I have it or if I'm acting like I have it in the sense of like just preparing and and staying inside, stuff like that, uh, that must mean that a fair number of people, it never escalates to the point of needing hospital intervention. Is that correct? Yeah. About 10% of people who get it need intensive hospital intervention. Typically people who are older and with other chronic conditions, but not only. Got it. And what would be for the people who stay home, like, so say the people who like think they have it, but they're not, there's no severe manifestations and they stay home. What should those people be doing? You know, I saw one report that some government official in France said, don't take Tylenol or don't take ibuprofen. Like what should people be doing at home? Well, first of all, I'm not a doctor. So if you're getting sick, you should do telemedicine, call up your doctor, follow, I think some protocols. But I think, you know, this could be as mild as a fever and for many people, the worst part of this will be a couple of things. One is the drastic economic impact that comes along with it. But secondly, that even if they don't get particularly sick by it, they're going to infect other people with weaker immune systems, uh, and they'll get sick. So the most important thing you can do, well, two things. First, pay attention in your community, because when wherever you live, they start to report a growing number of community-based cases, that's the time when it is going to start to follow a very, very high curve and grow very, very rapidly. And the most important thing you can do is minimize your contact with other people. Don't go to situations where there are crowds. Obviously, because of the way it spreads, you should be constantly washing your hands. You should never sneeze into your hands. Um, You should never shake hands with other people. 
Uh, you should keep a fair distance from other people. Not as important with people who you live with in your household unless they're elderly, but because people who are, you know, partners and so forth are going to probably give it to one another and get an immunity. But otherwise, we're about to launch a, a hashtag. We're about to launch a campaign tonight and tomorrow called hashtag stay home. Sometimes it's referred to headline as hashtag stay the F home. But either way, however you like it, that's really the most important thing you can do. Because the thing is, if everybody gets sick at once, the hospital system doesn't have the ability to take care of the really sick one, all the really sick ones at once. If it happens over time, if it happens slowly, our healthcare system can probably handle it. But if it happens very quickly, we're going to see tragic results. People are saying that there's a shortage of ICU units or respirators. Is that true or is that a rumor? It's true. It's true. I mean, it's not a shortage yet. But we have about 100,000 ventilators and ventilated ICU beds. An ICU bed is an intensive care unit bed where you can have a respirator. We also have a limited number of people who can work in those units, too. So um, a very important thing is making sure that our healthcare workforce stays healthy, uh, has enough protective equipment to stay healthy. But we have about 100,000 in the country, and I've heard that we really have less capacity than that because of the workforce, the way it's distributed. And, of course, keep in mind that, that those 100,000 aren't necessarily in all the places they need to be. So if you have a massive outbreak in Seattle and all the uh, ventilators are in Chicago, then that doesn't really help you. So that is an issue. That is a problem for us to understand and to deal with. Hospitals will need ventilators, ICUs, negative pressure rooms to keep the infection from spreading. And there's only so much of that you can have. And in big cities like New York City, when it really starts to grow there, if it grows too quickly, you could see the need for eight to ten times the demand for ventilators and ICUs than you actually have supply. Is there something that the federal government could do now to mitigate it or has the ship sailed? What should we be pressing our elected officials, whether it's the federal government, which obviously we have not a lot of faith in, or our local leaders? Like, can they do something, or is this just like a wait and watch? No, no. We need to be pressing Congress to continue to allocate funds to vulnerable people and vulnerable communities, low-income communities, um, justice-involved populations, poor and elderly populations, nursing home populations, healthcare workers. Because what the last thing we want is people who are sick going to work, but they can't stay home if they don't have an income. So they've taken some steps. There's a, a bill that will be heard by the Senate on Monday that does some things, and it's good progress, and we want it to pass, but it's not enough. We're going to have to keep asking Congress to go back again and again and again because there are communities that are going to get hurt. There's going to be restaurants to close. There's going to be airports to close. It's going to be all kinds of people that are displaced. And we need those people to have a medical leave. We need them to have uh, a whole number of things that are going to be important to keep people home and healthy. So there are going to be a lot of people who don't have the virus but are stuck at home for a couple of weeks or more. What's your advice to those people? Well, I mean, first of all, it's important to understand that uh, this has been studied, that people, when they hear something bad's about to happen, if it doesn't happen within two weeks, people start to doubt that it's going to happen, and they start to let their guard down. And then when it really does happen, they are unprepared and they don't listen, and that's when things get really bad. So 
you know, if you're in a city where there hasn't been a rising number of cases and community spread, be careful. Don't go to crowds, all those sorts of things. But, you know, your restaurants are probably still going to be open. Your bars are still going to be open. Be very careful. Stay away. But as soon as that changes, you're in for a period, which may be not just days and weeks, it may be months, where you're going to want to basically go outside and go out to do basic shopping, get some fresh air, uh, but really not socialize, not play dates, no dates, no going to the gym, that sort of thing. So I think we're going to have a whole new economy of creative ideas of people figuring out stuff they can do in their home. We might have a baby boom. We might have a divorce boom. We might have both. I saw the governor of Ohio say that he thought that it's a possibility that schools might not reopen this year. Do you think that that is a real possibility? Do you think that's alarmist? Like what? Because uh, there's so many people who are like, oh, I think this will just blow over. I think people are being dramatic. What do you say? I think it's a real possibility. Again, this could roll through Seattle and be done in Seattle as it's just getting started in Milwaukee. So, you know, you could end up in Milwaukee with no school next fall because we're in the throes of what Seattle is in now. And Seattle think, could be relatively hunky-dory. Is there a place across the country that is dealing with this better than other places? Like, is there a city that is sort of a model city that we can be looking to for like, wow, this is like a good way to do this? Yeah, the city would be Seoul, Korea. I think the South Koreans had their first virus date the same day ours. They, they were doing drive-through cars, tracking and monitoring people, uh, taking temperatures at borders, had sufficient tests for the population uh, all right away. Uh, Singapore as well. China eventually, you know, really they quarantined. Uh, those kind of severe measures help. So if you're living in a local community and your governor and your mayor are getting on TV every day and their health commissioner and telling you about the state count, the virus count, the test count, giving you counsel, giving you advice, et cetera, that's good. You're being well-led uh, locally. If they're being candid with you about the challenges, that's good too, believe it or not, because you, you kind of want to know. And I think, you know, we've turned a corner. I think it actually happened when the NBA went out where the awareness went from this ain't real to this is very real in a pretty short amount of time. And I think it's a hard thing for people to come to grips with because it is such a big it's a thing we've never experienced in our lifetime. But I think people are starting to really get an understanding of what, what it all means. I also saw that uh, Quest and one of the other big testing like lab services, that they are working on their own test. What will it mean when like a private company offers a test? Like how does that, e I don't even know. I just saw that and was like, will people be able to like, I don't know, go to a website and buy their own test? Or like, is there like a precedent for that happening like this? Well, the tests we were just talking about earlier, those are almost entirely going to come from a mix of some public state labs and private labs. CDC is hardly producing anything on their own. Uh, the shame of it is that the private labs who are now gearing up production asked in February if they could start to produce these tests and were told no by the federal government. And so we lost a really valuable month and we could have been much more ahead on testing capacity, which quite frankly um, is time that is impossible to quantify and ever recover from. So Quest is making one, but is it that the government just can't make the test fast enough? And I only ask because I saw that Jack Ma is donating 500,000 tests, so it means that like somebody's making the test. Can we not just buy their tests? The tests have giant supply chain issues with them. So first of all, you, know, you really need millions of tests if you were going to do this right. 
and there's a supply chain that you just run out of things. So you run out of the reagents you use to discover the RNA. You run out of machines. You run out of workers. You run out a lot of, a lot of things that just haven't been beefed up and are impossible to turn off on the fly. If we're still dealing with this a year from now, maybe that's different. But, you know, we, we don't have that luxury, that kind of time. Got it. So you're saying the countries that did this better, they just got in front of it faster. So they anticipated the supply chain issues and produced the tests faster than we did. That's what you're saying. That's right. Got it, got it. And do you think that we are going to hit a curve like Italy has hit, where it seems like it was like low, low, and now they are testing a lot of people and it seems pretty bad? Is that like what is anticipated, that this is like the calm before the storm right now in America? It is the calm before the storm. Right now, if you look at the curve of cases, we are in the exact course that Italy is on, but we're about 10 to 14 days in advance of them. And that's for the country. It varies depending on where you live. But we are headed, along with most of the European countries, we're on a caseload growth rate that's exactly modeling where Italy's was. Uh, last thing I'll ask is, are there any rumors that you want to address that we haven't talked about? Like, there's so much information going on around this, and it is hard to figure out what's true. Yeah, no, the facts are so important. We don't need to be spreading anxiety. We don't need to be spreading panic. We should be spreading help and humor and facts. People can deal with facts. Um, the most important rumor to debunk is these notions that, oh, this is just a flu and I'm young and healthy and what do I care? And it's St. Patrick's Day and I'm going to go out to the bar and have a drink. And I don't see it around me and I feel asymptomatic. Everyone from Italy is begging us, begging us, begging us to take the lessons that they wish they'd have taken because, you know, that that's going to result in, in um, I, and I don't want me to scare people, but that's going to result in death toll. And it may not be you. It may be people you know, and it may not be people you don't know. But this whole notion that um, this is just the flu and we don't really need to worry about it is really, really, really wrong and really costly. There we go. Uh, what's the name of your organization so people uh, know where to go to stay up to date with what you're doing? Well, we're going to launch a website that is called stayhomesavelives.us. And, you know, a lot of younger people, a lot of really involved people listen to your podcast and they're activated and they want to know what they can do. And really just patiently persuading other people to take this seriously, particularly the social distancing, is the most important thing that they can do because I think young people are sometimes skeptical uh, of this. And I think if if they can only transport themselves to Seattle right now or China or Italy, I think they would be thinking very, very differently. Just because you've never seen something doesn't mean it's not possible. And what will be the thrust of the site? Well, it's really going to um, launch with a series of recommendations from 15 experts, 16 experts, including myself, that are for people, what they should do, uh, advice for governors and mayors and other local officials, and advice for healthcare workers. So we've distilled, I think, what I believe some of the leading healthcare experts and epidemiologists in the country, uh, and people like myself who do all that, but also try to communicate a lot to the public. Things are the best, important things to know. Other content will be added later. But it's going to be pretty simple, straightforward stuff. And people need a reliable place to get knowledge. Uh, don't make that your only source. If you find other sources you trust, particularly local sources, that's important too. But this whole campaign about stay home and the fact that stay home save lives is just really critical. Boom. Andy, thanks so much for joining us on Pod Save the People. Can you tell people your Twitter so that people know how to find you? 
I'd be delighted to because uh, my Twitter will probably have the most frequent daily, hourly, up-to-date things that are going on because I'm talking to the labs, governors, senators, policymakers, epidemiologists, and stuff pretty regularly, and I'll keep to post it. At A-Slavitt, that's A-S-L-A-V-I-T-T. Boom. Thanks so much for making time today, and hopefully we will stay in touch as this progresses. Of course. Thanks to Ray. Good luck, everybody. Stay safe. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning in to Pod Save the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcasts, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we'll see you next week.